Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and having a deeper connection to our own humanity. This is episode 93. It's another joint episode with Melita Thomas from Tudor Times on Catherine Parr. She is a much requested queen for us to cover. You know how I mentioned the Agora Podcast Network? Well, we produce independent podcasts for people who are smart, discerning, and better looking than the average bear. And we have just under a million downloads a month. If this sounds like an audience that you would like to reach, contact us at agorapodcastnetwork.com about advertising your product or service. And now I want to thank the lovely patrons of this show who help to keep it independent. Thank you to Kathy, Cynthia, Jurgen, Olivia, Al, Ashley, Kendra, Anne Boleyn, aka Jessica, Elizabeth, another Cynthia, and Judith. Also Kaylee, Ian, Laura, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanna, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Catherine, Candice, Rebecca, and Shandor. You are all awesome, and I am so, so grateful to you. To learn more about how you can join this list of amazing people, you can go to patreon.com slash englandcast patreon.com slash englandcast, or you can go to englandcast.com and click on the donate and support area. So now let me introduce you to Melita Thomas. Melita is a co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history in the period from 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tudortimes.co.uk. She is also the author of a recently published book on Mary the First, called The King's Pearl. So check that out too. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970s series Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, also contributes articles to BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. So she was your person of the month. She was your first person of the month, right? She was, yes. Yeah, no, we we, we had quite a lot of thought when we, we first decided to do it. And we wanted to, to look at somebody who was well enough known for people to be interested, but actually people didn't necessarily know that much about or perhaps had uh, a fairly fixed view of, um, you know, the, the whole idea that Catherine Parr was practically Henry's nursemaid has, you know, it's been very much debunked by um, new scholarship, but it's still in the popular imagination. That's, that's kind of where she was. So we thought she would be a great one to do. And she's, she's still one of my favorites, actually, of, mm. of, of the, people of the month that we've done because 
I don't know. She 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 seems to have had a really engaging personality, and I mean, some of her spiritual writings are a bit uh, bit dense, shall we say? But she was interested in dancing and music, and she had family and friends, and yeah, she just seems like an attractive personality. So, what can you tell me about her early life before she became Henry's? Um, wife. And then I want to ask you about her relationship with Thomas Seymour as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, What can you tell me about her kind of early, early life with her first marriages and her early childhood and everything? Well, I I think one of the interesting things about Catherine is that she's the only one of Henry's wives who had a life outside the court. I mean, Jane Seymour did to an extent, but she was a a, a lady in waiting or maid of honour quite young. So Catherine Parr, her parents, uh, Maud Green, Lady Parr was her mother, and her father, Sir Thomas, they were both uh, members of the court. Maud was a a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine of Aragon, and Sir Thomas Parr undertook quite a lot of diplomatic work for Henry. He was in the, I can't remember if he was a privy councillor, but he was certainly in, in, in the Henry's sort of circle of advisors, although the Pars were an old Yorkist family. But Catherine had a, a younger brother and a younger sister, Anne and William, and her father died uh, when she was quite young. And unusually, her mother, although she was still very young, still only in her um, early 20s, I think, she didn't remarry, but she brought up her children with the help of her brother-in-law, Sir William Parr of Horton, and quite a lot of advice from a distant cousin who uh, was Cuthbert Tunstall, the uh, later yeah. Bishop of Durham. Uh, yeah, so interesting, actually, because Cuthbert Tunstall was a you know conservative in religion, but he was also um, a friend of Catherine's and clearly took a sort of fatherly role in her life. Maud's main job was to arrange the marriage of her son and heir, William. and uh, But her sort of subsidiary uh, job was to arrange marriages for her daughters. And... Uh, with Catherine, she arranged a marriage in 1528 when Catherine was about 14 to Edward Borough of Gainsborough. And it used to be thought that this was a terribly old man and Catherine at the age of 14 was married to some old man and sent to live in the country. New researchers showed that it wasn't the old Sir Edward Borough, but his grandson, the young Edward, though they were probably of a similar sort of age in their, in their teens. We've no idea what they thought about each other. Uh, they had no children. Uh, Catherine, first of all, went to live with his family at Gainsborough Hall, which is actually well worth visiting. It's still there, just north of Lincoln, preserved by the local authority, in fact, right in the centre of the town of Gainsborough. Lovely Mm -hmm. old house. Sir Thomas Borough was quite a strong personality. He dominated his children and probably Catherine as well. Horrible to his other daughter-in-law, who he threw out of the house bag and baggage because he thought she'd committed adultery. He was also a religious reformer and became Chamberlain to Queen Anne Boleyn. So it's possible that Catherine was influenced by her father-in-law in in her religious views because she was was only young. But then she and her husband, they had a home a bit north of Gainsborough at uh, Kersey in Linton, I think, a a little town north of Gainsborough. But uh, young Edward died when I think uh, Catherine was still in her teens late teens by then. Uh, so she'd have been yeah, getting on for 20. And nobody's quite sure where she went next, but probably she went to stay with her distant cousin, Catherine Strickland, or uh, whose maiden name was Neville, but who had been one time married into the Bur- Borough family, but was now remarried and re-widowed and living in uh, Strickland in Kendall in um, the rather lovely Sizer Castle. 
Mm. which is another place which is well worth visiting. So it's possible or even probable that Catherine was there for a short period, but she then remarried. And her second husband was John Neville, another of the great Neville family who were everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was Lord Latimer and he was probably 20 years older than Catherine. She was his third wife and he already had a son and a daughter. Mm. And uh, she became quite a, a, a devoted stepmother to her, her stepdaughter, Margaret, possibly less close to her stepson. And there's a couple of quotes where she's talking about, um, and they didn't use the word teenage behavior, teenagers in those days, but about young people uh, taking slights everywhere and being difficult and morose and <laughs> sullen. And you can think, yep, <laughs> yeah. teenage boy, stepmother was always going to be a bit awkward. But later, later, his wife became one of her ladies-in-waiting. So uh, they probably rubbed along all right in the end. And she and John Latimer were married for quite a few years. And again, we don't know about their personal relationship other than that he seems to have trusted in her and he left the direction of his daughter to her in, in his will. But the big event of the 1530s when Catherine was you know, keeping house in the country at um, Snape Castle, which was Latimer's home, was the Pilgrimage of Grace, which, you know, the whole of the north of England erupted into rebellion. And Latimer, like many of the other gentry, was semi-forced into taking part. Now, her old father-in-law, Sir Thomas Borough, had resisted being involved because he was a he was a strong reformer. But Latimer was probably of a well. Most historians think he was of a, a very conservative, traditional Catholic bent. Doctor Starkey has pointed out that he had betrothed his daughter Margaret to a reformer. So again, perhaps not quite so clear cut as as we might think. Mm. But Catherine had a had a really hard time in that Snape Castle, where she was with her stepchildren, was attacked by the rebels and they broke into the castle and sacked part of it. Now, we don't know whether Catherine and Margaret were harmed. I mean, it, it's not it's not impossible. Soldiers, you know, have attacked women for, for a very long time. But the Pilgrimage of Grace, they did see themselves as uh, pilgrims of Christ and they did sign a, an agreement that they would treat people, you know, that they wouldn't violate women. And um, so hopefully she wasn't um, subject to any personal violence. Mm-hmm. She certainly doesn't mention it in any of her writings or give any suggestion that that was the case, fortunately. But it must have been terrifying. Um, and then, of course, Latimer was in a difficult position because he'd... he'd he got involved with the rebels. The the place had been, um, but his house had been ransacked by them. And of course, Henry, King Henry and Cromwell were eyeing him with great suspicion because they thought he was involved. So he, he sort of was between a rock and a hard place to a degree. And it transpired, he, he more or less had to leave the north. So he and Catherine moved down to um, the south of England and they probably spent their time largely in uh, Worcestershire with his brother, Marmaduke, marvellous name, <laughs> and with her cousins who were all round Northamptonshire, the, the Vaux of Harrodon. And for those people who've been watching the gunpowder plot, the Vaux of Harrodon, uh, who were, um, you know, I- important characters in, in the, yeah. the story of the gunpowder plot, they were, they were Catherine's cousins, the Vaux family. Um, but of course, in those days, everybody was everybody's cousin. In... 1542, uh, there was a parliament called and Lord Latimer, of course, as a, as a baron of parliament was, was called to London to take part. He fell ill and Catherine seems to have spent quite a lot of time at the court in the household, possibly as a paid member, but possibly just a visitor of Henry VIII's daughter, the Lady Mary. Catherine's sister, Anne Harbert, was, was in Mary's household. 
And while she was there, she caught the king's eye. Yeah. But of course, she had already, because Latimer died in, in March 1543, she was already contemplating marrying somebody else altogether, uh, Thomas Seymour. The Tell me brother about that. Of, yes. So Thomas Seymour was, he was the brother of uh, Queen Jane Seymour. And oddly, even though by he, he was well into his 30s by now, he had never married, or at least there is no record of him ever having married, mm-hmm. which was extremely unusual in those days. Mm-hmm. No, no record even of any broken engagements. There was talk of him marrying Mary Fitzroy, the widow of the Duke of Richmond, but she wasn't interested. Mm-hmm. Probably thought he was too low in birth for her. So yeah, surprising that he'd never married, but he and Catherine seemed to have um, you know, been planning to marry when Henry came along and suggested the position of, full, of sixth wife. Yeah, and she couldn't really say no to that. Tricky, isn't it? What are you going to say? Yeah, so so, so sorry, Your Majesty, but I really don't fancy you. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not not a winner, is it? She so then Thomas Seymour got sent away, right? And she became Henry's wife. And I'm really interested in kind of how she grew into that role, and then her writing career was. That's a very, very big part of who she was, was being the first published woman writing her Lamentations of a Sinner and all of that. Um, Can you tell me, I guess the first part is how she kind of grew into the role of a reluctant queen, I suppose. I think in in some ways she probably wasn't as reluctant as all that. I mean, you know, clearly she was, seems to have been sorry not to marry Seymour, but you know, this this was an age when a woman's duty was to promote her family. Yeah. She could do nothing better than be queen. It was a fantastic opportunity for her family. Her brother, who had been very unhappily married, managed to uh, retain his wife's title and lands, but not have to live with his wife. It was great for him. Yeah, that's cool. His her sister's husband, he was already um, doing quite well, but it, it was very good for it was very good for her whole family. It was a you know marvelous marvelous thing to be to be a queen. Henry, I know you know who would want to be married to Henry VIII, but he, he you've got to remember that he was considered to be a very charming man in his youth, and clearly he, he had charisma and people you know so. Perhaps Perhaps, you know, it wasn't, wasn't quite as, you know, and he'd have had all the, the charisma of being a king. It, it probably wasn't quite as, you know, and power. Everybody likes a bit of power. And she had all the, all the money she could desire, all the jewellery she could want. Henry seems to have doted on her. He gave her lots of presents and he, he clearly trusted her political judgment. She was... In between trying to kill her, right? Thinking about killing well, her. yes and no, but did he? So he appointed her as regent in 1544 and that all went very, very smoothly. But then, yeah, possibly, possibly it did go to her head a bit and she became a little bit more, what should we say, lippy than Henry was entirely pleased with in a, in a wife. Mm-hmm. Because she, she, whether she'd been interested in religious reform before or not isn't certain, but now she certainly became interested in it. And Henry, of course, had always been interested in theological debate and they started to debate about it. And Catherine obviously failed to mention that she was, um, you know, hanging on his every word and possibly contradicted him a few times. And, you know, that didn't go down too well. In the wider court, there was jostling between the reformist faction led by the Seymours, more or less, and the conservative faction led by um, Bishop Gardner of Winchester, uh, Sir Sir Richard Rich, the, um, the Howards. So, Catherine, once she'd annoyed the king, it suddenly seemed like a good idea to the uh, conservatives to, they they thought they might be able to get rid of her. Now, you've got to bear in mind that all of this comes from John Fox's Book of Martyrs. 
-hmm. he tells a story where Catherine irritated the king. Gardner leapt on it and said, you know, it's a fine thing when wives start telling husbands what to do. And Henry, always always a bit sensitive about that, um, yeah, decided that, that Catherine was um, behaving badly. And Gardner said that he would prove to Henry that she was a, a heretic. Mm. So Henry said, okay, fine, do your worst. But then Catherine found out that they were, you know, there was a plan to, to arrest her. Or well, she probably found out from one of Henry's doctors. So it's it's certainly possible he he let her know in the same way that when the conservative faction attacked Cranmer, he managed to let them have their way to a degree, but then turned that turned tables on them yeah. and put uh, put Cranmer at, he- at the head of his of the in- investigation into his own own heresy. So mm. it was uh, yeah. So it's possible that ca- that this was meant as a warning shot to Catherine rather than yeah intention though did it really happen the dramatic scene where they were coming to arrest her and he kind of then yelled at the guards not to arrest her even though he had said that it was okay earlier like that famous scene that you hear about that really happened we don't know well probably i mean so this is it all comes from john fox's book of martyrs now most most scholars think that where where his accounts can be tested he's He's accurate, but we do have to remember that he was he had an agenda uh, to show that you know Protestants and reformers were were badly treated. So, but it it probably did. Yes, I mean he, he his is the only account of it. There's there's no corroborating account, but I, I think it's very likely because it's similar to what happened to Cranmer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But Catherine must have had a heart in her mouth because when she saw them coming, she must have thought, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So then what, can you tell me a little bit about her writing and that side of her? She was obviously of an intellectual turn of mind. Um, We don't know the details of her education. She was educated as women were in, you know, she she read, she wrote, she spoke French, she played musical instruments, she knew how to run a great household. Whether she learned Latin in her youth is, is questioned. She certainly learned, was learning it, once she was Henry's wife, because um, from a diplomatic point of view, it was it was useful to know. And she also studied Spanish and Italian later in life, so she was she was clearly of a studious bent. Her first writings were were some prayers, which she created a prayer for people to say when when Henry was abroad in France. So that was um, all very positive. Then she translated some works by. Um, quite traditional theological works like um, The Imitation of Christ, which had mm-hmm. been, you know, the runaway bestseller of the 15th century. She also translated some works of uh, Bishop Bishop of Rochester. Again, not, you know, fairly conservative stuff, not the sort of thing to make Henry's eyebrows rise in any way. Her other work, The Lamentations of a Sinner, which I have to say is I did try sort of reading some of it, but um, just to give you a a little flavour of it. So she talks about her journey from being mired in, quote, foul, wicked, perverse and crooked ways. Mm -hmm. And then she utterly rejects the Bishop of Rome as a persecutor of the gospel and a grave, a setter forth of all superstition and counterfeit holiness. And she bewails the miserable ignorance and blindness of men. So quite prolix, I think, is the word. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So 
that so that was the Lamentations of a Sinner, which she wrote probably during Henry's reign, but it wasn't published until the reign of her stepson. And after that, oh, she was also very closely involved in the um, translation of Erasmus's paraphrases on the gospel, which was a, a, a project by Nicholas Udall or Udall, not never quite sure how to say that, <laughs> which involved her stepdaughter, the Lady Mary, who did one of the paraphrases. It's it's unlikely that Catherine did any of the translation the, the, because her Latin wouldn't have been of sufficient level. But it was she did promote the work and sponsor it. She doesn't seem to have written anything after Henry died, other than the Lamentations of a Sinner, or completing that. Mm. And it's possible that a new life with a new husband and new interests may have taken her mind in more, um, what should we say, secular secular avenues than, than being married mm. to Henry did. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about the time she spent after the scare, as it were, and how her relationship with Henry was towards the end? After that, again, he seems to have reverted to, um, you know, doting on her and she, he was generous to her. And she, she obviously, having had a scare, you know, was, was very careful in her ways and, and perhaps became a bit more of a submissive, obedient wife that he, he thought she should be. He, in late 1546, he fell into some sort of a depression and he probably didn't see Catherine. Uh, she, she didn't spend that Christmas with him and there's no evidence that she was with him at the time of his death. Mm-hmm. Where possibly he did, had lost some faith in her is that although in 1544, when he went to France, she was appointed as regent. And in his will of that year, she was appointed to be regent for Edward, should he die. In his final will, she wasn't, she wasn't named as regent. He provided very generously for her and wanted her to continue to be treated as queen, but she was given no political power. And that led to like a, a fight, wasn't it? There was some drama with... Oh, yes, with, with her sister-in-law. Now, her sister-in-law, Anne Stanhope, was married to Edward Seymour. So Henry died and Catherine lost no time, it has to be said, in remarrying. So Henry died towards the end of January. And sometime in May, uh, she secretly married Thomas Seymour, which uh, now Thomas Seymour's brother, Edward, was in theory only one amongst the Regency Council, but within within days of Henry's death, he, he was kingpin, he was Duke of Somerset, leader of the council, and king in all but name. Thomas was very upset about this because he felt he should have some share of the uh, of the goodies that were being handed out, but he didn't get very much. And Seymour, uh, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset now, his wife, Anne Stanhope, had previously been one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. And she too was a, a firm Protestant by now, a reformer. But whether they'd quarrelled previously or whether they'd never liked each other, they certainly fell out now because the Duchess of Somerset felt she should take precedence as the protector's wife. And Catherine was saying, no, 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 I'm still the queen. And Anne Somerset was saying, no, no, you're just the, the wife of my younger brother, of my, you know, my, my younger brother-in-law. And these things really mattered in those days. Mm-hmm. So Anne Somerset is jostling Catherine out of the doorways, trying to take first place. And the Duke of Somerset is withholding Catherine's uh, jewels. So there's a big, you know, family brouhaha. Mm. Christmas dinner was awkward that year. (laughs) Yes, it probably was. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And Catherine had also upset her daughter and her stepdaughter, Mary, by by her rapid marriage to Thomas Seymour, which um, Mary thought was disrespectful to, to the memory of her father. 
Yes. So what that brings me into, what was her relationship like with Mary and with Elizabeth? Elizabeth was in the household. There's drama to get into too. There's so much drama. There is so much drama, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Catherine and Mary had been very good friends. There's no looking looking at their relationship, and obviously it's an area I've looked at quite a lot for um, my book about Mary. They they were good friends uh, before before Catherine became queen. Religiously, they were still close, weren't they? They were, because again, we've got to be careful not to look back. During Henry's life, Catherine... Uh, and and right up until you know it wasn't until certainly the 1549 prayer book which was two years after henry's death and even that that the the central point of religion the mass was changed throughout henry's life there was nothing in day-to-day religious observance that uh, catherine and mary didn't share whatever might have been going on in their respective heads so yeah we've got to be careful not to to look back and, and I mean, whether Mary would ever seen the lamentations of a sinner in draft, you know, it didn't come out until after Henry's death. So, the, the, you know, they, they were on good terms. Yeah. And Mary, Mary lived with her and they were, you know, seen together and ambassadors would visit them together. And, and, and you know, they were close friends. Elizabeth was much younger. I mean, she was, I mean, Mary was four years younger than Catherine. Elizabeth was 20 plus years younger. So she really was like her daughter and she came to live with her and Elizabeth was, she was 13 and a half and uh, there she was with a stepfather who, um, Thomas Seymour, who took more of an interest in her than he should have done. Yeah. Again, you've got to be careful here to remember that, you know, as 12 was marriageable age in those days, they didn't think of it the way we do. Now, clearly there's, you know, the the outrage was more about him, um, obviously being unfaithful or potentially, I'm I'm sure he, he, he and Elizabeth never actually committed adultery or anything like that. But she was, you know, she was a marriageable age, but it was more the outrage of of him, you know, laying his hands on the king's daughter that was horrifying everybody rather than necessarily an age thing. Right. Sure. And so how how did she, how, what's the record? I mean, she sent Elizabeth away then and then she was pregnant at this time, too. Right. And like kind of did they ever repair their relationship not well yes not in the flesh so i mean what it started off with with thomas seymour too much horseplay with it with his stepdaughter you know slapping and tickling and that sort of thing going into her bedroom early and 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 to begin with catherine appears not to have known about it when Catherine, when elizabeth's governess uh, mrs astley uh you know, brought it to the Queen's attention, then Catherine thought, okay, well, she she started to take part as well to make it all seem a bit more family friendly. Right. But allegedly, and again, you know, we can't ever know these things, she caught Thomas and Elizabeth um, embracing and possibly kissing. So she sent Elizabeth away, much as anything to, well, to protect Elizabeth's reputation because if Elizabeth had been shown to have had a physical relationship with a man she she would have lost her place in the succession there's no no possibility she could have been um queen if she'd if she'd had been known to have an affair with Seymour and of course if Catherine had allowed it to go under on under her roof it's possible that she would have been punished as well so she sent Elizabeth off sorry 
no, no. So she sent Elizabeth off, and and then how? And Elizabeth, in her pregnancy was that, and uh, fairly early on. So she must have been th- maybe three or four months. Okay. You know, so she she was pregnant, but she wasn't wasn't sort of right at the end. And Elizabeth obviously understood that her stepmother had done it for her own good and she wrote a letter of thanks to Catherine saying I know you spoke you, you know you spoke very um frankly to me but I appreciate it because I know you wouldn't have done that if you didn't really care about me or in, in Tudor words to that effect and then um Elizabeth stayed in Chesant with the Denny family and Catherine then went I think in May or June of 1548 to Sudley Castle and she took with her the young Jane Grey mm-hmm. Uh, and all seemed to be going swimmingly. She didn't seem to have had a difficult pregnancy. Uh, she seems to have uh, made it up with Seymour, who, you know, probably persuaded her that it was all, you know, nothing, nothing but fun and games, and probably she wanted to believe that. And then poor, poor Catherine died of probably of uh, puerperal fever, childbed fever. Yeah. Very, without having seen Elizabeth or Mary again, although um, uh, she had, they had both written to her. Yeah, and then the... Her child, there's isn't there a bit of a mystery about whether she died? If there, there's like a grave that's maybe hers. In, the, in can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, and the research, uh, Doctor Doctor Porter did quite a lot of research into it, and I would definitely agree with her conclusions that Mary Seymour died young. I mean, what's what's quite upsetting about the poor little girl is she first of all of course um you know her father was was there to look after her but within within months of Catherine's death um Thomas Seymour was executed for treason and the little girl I mean you would have thought that Catherine's brother or sister would have taken their niece uh you know Catherine had been very good to her siblings but no, uh, she went off to live with um, Catherine Willoughby, the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk, who had been one of Catherine's closest friends. But uh, a year or two later, there's a there's a letter from Catherine Willoughby complaining about the expense. The council made an order for some money, and then nothing is ever heard of her again. Mm. So I, I tend to think she must have died, because apart from anything else, it's likely that had she still been living when either Mary or Elizabeth came to the throne, that they would have they'd have done something for their for her I would have thought sure particularly Mary who had um I mean it's certainly likely that Mary Seymour may have been named for her so yeah poor little girl just (sighs) yeah I know so she probably died died at the I mean a lot of children did yeah so what what's kind of the takeaway that you have of Catherine and her life what should we remember her for yeah I I think I think actually she was somebody who well, I, I really like her sort of intellectual curiosity. She clearly was somebody who was interested in different things and liked to learn. And she seems she seems to have made friends wherever she went. All, all her stepchildren, possible exception of her older stepson, seem to have been very attached to her. Uh, Henry was attached to her. Other than the quarrel with Anne Somerset, which is actually quite fun because uh, Catherine writes about how uh, she calls her by a, she calls her a hell, which was a fine. It was fine to say that now, but in in those days it meant something really really bad. Uh, so you so she sort of comes to life with her in her letters to Thomas Seymour. Uh, she's somebody uh, probably of, the, of Henry's wives. Perhaps her and Anne of Cleves would be the most likely you'd want to be friends with. I think. Mm-hmm. Sure. The most most sort of fun without overdoing it (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. how fun so where can we go to learn more about her well uh there we have got quite a lot on about her on the tudor time site the 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 
The scholarly biography of her is by Dr. Susan James, and it is exhaustive. It covers absolutely everything. So if you want to know anything about Catherine, that's the place to go. If you want to see Catherine in more in, in the context of the court and the times and her relationships, uh, Dr. Linda Porter's book, Catherine the Queen, is, is super, absolutely super. Elizabeth Norton, um, not probably so detailed as the other two, but slightly different take on it. Um, very strong on her relationship with Elizabeth. She pops up Agnes Strickland, the good old uh, <laughs> lives of the Queens of England. She loves Catherine as the first Protestant queen. Sure. So she and also because she was a relation, uh, you know, far far distant of the Strickland family of Sizer Castle, where Catherine may have lived for a bit with her cousin. Mm-hmm. So always lovely. She pops up in all of the, um, you know, six wives books uh, for a novel, Elizabeth Fremantle, her book, uh, The Queen's Gambit. That's it. And an interesting, the Su- the Sixth Wife by Susanna Dunn. Uh, which is very different from your usual type of historical fiction, and it's written in in very modern language, which takes a bit of getting used to. Uh-huh. Okay, great. Well, that is all really wonderful. Um, I loved hearing more detail to her story, and just like we talked about with with your talk at the Tudor Summit about Mary, with um, nuance, like it's mm-hmm. so many. It's so easy to put these women into boxes, and um, Catherine is certainly one that gets put into the nursery nursemaid box a lot and there's so much more to her than that so thank you for bringing her more to life good well thank you thanks again melita for taking the time to talk to us more about Catherine parr for more information on her go to tutortimes.co.uk or see the resources on the england cast site at englandcast.com remember if you like this show the biggest way you can help it is to leave a review on itunes or tell a friend about it Seriously, talk to your friends about this show if they love the Tudors, right? They're missing out. The next episode in about a week is going to be about shopping in Tudor England. So if you're already tired of Christmas shopping, you could maybe take a break from real Christmas shopping and hear about what it was like to go shopping in the Tudor period. So that's coming up next. And then we'll be back with another Tudor Times person of the month. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your listenership and for all your support. And I will talk with you again very soon. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 